The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, I love it in Flint. You're very astute. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed. It's a robocall. Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is an award-winning author with a new book called The Land of Cocaine. His name is Jeffrey Lewis. He joins me by phone. Hi, Jeffrey. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here, Tom. Um, how did the the book get titled Land of Cocaine um, when it's set in Sneeds Harbor, Maine? <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good. It's a pretty good question. How the book got titled, I suppose, is left to 
my imagination or a very limited memory, but as best I can recall it, I liked the name. I thought it was a great name. Uh, the, the very word uh, cocaine and the legend around the so-called land of cocaine I thought was very appealing. I could read a little bit from the, uh, the book jacket uh, to just uh, describe how I got there. This land of cocaine was an old medieval peasant stream of a sensual paradise on earth. In Jeffrey Lewis's novel, it is a plot on the coast of Maine, once a summer resort, and now where Walter Rath and Catherine Gray, trying to assuage their grief and make meaningful their deceased son's life, build what they hope will be a brief, fleeting version of paradise for a group of young men from the Bronx. In other words, uh, I took this uh, medieval dream and decided that, uh, or my characters decided that they would try to recreate something like that for a couple weeks in, uh, in the United States today. Isn't there a poem by the same name? Uh, I believe there is. There certainly, I believe there is. There's also a painting by Bruegel, and in uh, American culture, actually. The idea of the land of cocaine was taken wholesale for a song called Big Rock Candy Mountain, which uh, I, I forget who was the, uh, you know, originally sang it in the United States, but Pete Seeger certainly covered it in, in the uh, late 20th century. This central to your book is a... Um a diversionary action program, Bronx Cares. Yeah. Is that a real organization, or was this just something you dreamt up that, for that the is, protagonists? It's, it's, a, it's of course everything in the book is fictional. Uh, nothing uh, comes uh, close to being uh, actual events or autobiographical or, or or anything like that. However. Uh, in one of my earlier incarnations, I worked in the criminal justice system in Manhattan, uh, and there were at that time uh, so-called diversionary programs, rather like uh, the uh, one, to, or at least enable to enable to inspire the one uh, that I created in uh, Land of Cocaine. Uh, by diversionary program was meant a program in, in the criminal court system, and I'm sure you have them in in Michigan as well, uh, uh, which uh, programs which advocate for young criminal defendants that they not be incarcerated, but rather given opportunities to reform themselves outside the criminal justice system, or at least in parallel to it. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, I, I was just trying to think how to frame this next question, and, and it's it's really kind of a um, it seems kind of fluffy. But is there a genre that this book fits into? It's a novel, but yet it it talks about um, some some pretty heavy things with regard to race and 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 uh, how we address race and youth and crime and all of these things, sort of make a way in um, yeah no no genre 
I wouldn't write a novel if I had to write a genre novel. I'll tell you the truth. Uh, but you've got these young you've got these young men from the Bronx. Sure. Fifteen of them, and uh, I say young men, but um, well, but you've got um, and and they they go to this place in Maine. To what end? I, I mean, it's not a coming of age story. It's it's uh, not a, a young adult adventure story about these young kids from the Bronx. It's uh, um, no, it's it, like it, like uh, any true novel. I think it uh, uh, starts with a blank page and looks at the world and tries on that blank page or blank two or three hundred pages or more uh, to create an, imp- uh, an impression of that world. And uh, if one starts with a genre, then one starts with, in, in effect, uh, commercial expectations, or, or at least ex- expectations or readership that certain parts of that uh, reality uh, that the uh, novel may be a blank page to record uh, are predetermined. In other words, if you've got a, uh, uh, a detective novel and the detective's got to be out there and he's probably got to be beaten up in about the third chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and t- taken hostage in the eighth chapter and shoot somebody that he didn't mean to or that he meant to in the twelfth chapter. And if you don't have those things, you're not fitting in the genre. Whether or not that genre uh, conforms to uh, life on Earth, uh, it, it just establishes a way as a certain kind of story. And uh, that's actually not why I started writing books. I, if I'd wanted to uh, continue, or if I'd wanted to do more genre-related things, uh, to be honest, uh, television was way more lucrative and uh, reaches way more many people. Well, I had to snicker a little bit when you mentioned detectives getting beat up. I've been watching uh, old episodes of Mannix with Mike Connors, and and I've gotten into this routine of, of it gets to the second commercial, and I go, okay, when they come back, Mannix is going to get beat up. Yeah, yeah. That's Kind of, I, I, I was when I was young, kind of as a default. I mean, I didn't know what I should be doing in life exactly, but I did go to law school, and I suppose I didn't want to be a lawyer, but I could have been a lawyer in life. The point of being a writer, it seems to me, the opportunity of being a writer was maybe if you're lucky to contribute in some small way to the world seeing itself a little more clearly, uh, the human world seeing itself a little more clearly. And uh, in the end, I felt that the only way to do that was to pretty much abandon uh, commercially driven enterprises and hope for the best. And uh, at, at that point, I quit TV. Well, Jeffrey, this um, this story revolves around a couple, 
a married couple, Walter Rath and Catherine, a.k.a. Charlie Gray. And they're trying to do some good in the world in memory of their murdered son. Correct. So they take in eight African-Americans and seven Hispanics, these young men that are hand-picked, because what else would you do? Um, It's actually kind of a different way of them dealing with their loss by wanting to do something good going forward. But how do these, first of all, how are these young men picked? And then when they go there, What's it like back and forth? Who learns from whom? Well, let's see. I think there's about three questions there, and with my limited memory, I'll, I'll probably have forgotten. <laughs> well, I was trying to give you something to work with, Jeffrey. <laughs> By the time I get to the get through the first one, but uh, the reason uh, the rafts uh, attempt to do this is that they're honoring what they find out is a, a wish of their deceased son. Their son worked in the courthouse in the Bronx, and through his girlfriend, they discovered that he'd said, wouldn't it be great if we could bring a bunch of these kids up to Maine where I grew up and just treat them treat them like little princes for a couple weeks. And they learn this, and it's the only thing that they're aware of that their son uh, had announced as a desire. Uh, uh, and so it's the only thing they can sort of hang on to or uh, to try and uh, keep his memory alive. They're doing it because their son thought it, not because they thought it was a good idea, but because their their son did. And it actually turns out in the course of the thing that the son said it almost as a joke, which they didn't know when they got involved in it. And it's entirely questionable uh, whether what they do does anybody any real good. Uh, and it's equally questionable who, if anyone, learns anything from the others. The kids uh, who are brought up are, at least in my view, wonderfully resilient and don't seem to be harmed by the whole thing. Whether they're helped in any way is, uh, you know, an an ambiguity that the book book creates, and I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not even prepared, as even as the author, to, to try to resolve. Uh, as for uh, the rats themselves, the people whose grief uh, 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 sets the book in motion, uh, theirs is a gnarly marriage made uh, much gnarlier by their, uh, the loss of their son. Uh, and the, the quite great question of the book, is, or, or a great question of the book, is whether their marriage will sur- survive. Uh, they're, they're, they're a lot well don't after the loss of a child. Yeah, they're well aware. Even somebody in the town uh, says and then regrets saying at one of the town meetings that uh, no marriage survives the death of a child, which uh, isn't true, but can sometimes appear to be true. And certainly is it uh, a kind of uh, a terrible question, a tragic question that overhangs Walter and Charlie in the book. More with author Jeffrey Lewis straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Today. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with author Jeffrey Lewis, straight ahead. This idea reminded me a little bit of a conversation I had with, um, remember Jimmy J.J. Uh, Walker from the television program Good Times? No, I don't. Sorry. Oh, he's <laughs> the one who had the... Uh, pop culture uh, vacuum there. Oh, he had the catchphrase, uh, dynamite, and um, he grew up in, in Harlem and then ended up doing stand-up comedy and radio and and at one point he was you know a, in a big hit Norman Lear TV show ended up on the cover of Time magazine as comedian of the year or of the decade or something and I asked him I said did the fact that you grew up poor motivate you in any way to accomplish the things you accomplished and he said I didn't know we were poor it wasn't like we were spending the weekend in the Hamptons and and I thought about that conversation as I was thinking of these young boys going from the uh you know from the Bronx to Maine you know to it's a that's a wonderful observation on your part I mean that that comparison and of course it's an open question in the book, and I, I don't try to uh, answer questions as much as ask them in the book, but it, it, it's it's a question whether uh, us, uh, being suddenly led into a kind of little princely life uh, uh, could make them feel bad, uh, could create in them envy or anger, or a desire to change their circumstances? All those are open questions. Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, they, uh, despite what uh, 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 some have said, uh, people in the United States live on in fairly close quarters with one another in terms of what they observe about other people's consumption habits. You know, social media in particular uh, means that you, you can be uh, uh, poor like crazy in the United States and still, unfortunately, uh, see how the other side lives. It doesn't always happen, but it certainly can. Uh, and, and so uh, the dollop of kindness that it, the, uh, the RAS, the couple in the book, attempt uh, could be also received as just that, a dollop of kindness. Uh, and I, I'm, even as the author, I'm not prepared to make a judgment as to uh, which it, it, it turns out, and probably it's all, you know, the right answer, as in many questions you see, is the last one, all of the above. I don't want to give away any spoiler alerts, but does it make it tough for these uh, young men to go back to the Bronx? I think they're happy to get get out. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I think they're happy to go home. Well, I mean, there are some events that happen would make them happy to go home, and that's not without a certain uh, thankfulness and a, a, a ruefulness and, ob and capacity for observation. About, about the uh, weeks they spent away. But uh, I think, uh, on average, uh, if you polled them, there, there are no scenes in the book to uh, 
kind of uh, authorial determination, but my guess is that uh, they're happy to touch down back in New York. Are they changed in any way, these these young men, as uh, Walter and Charlie's uh, son would have hoped by this exposure, or is he wanting something for them that they wouldn't necessarily want for themselves? Again, I think that's an uh, an excellent question, really excellent question. It go it goes to uh, the kind of question that the book asks, but I don't think there's an easy answer to it. For one thing, uh, there's there's uh, fifteen kids uh, to expect. Uh, you know, a, a uniform response. I think is uh, is un- unfair to them as individuals. Secondly, uh, you know, I guess one imagines, like every uh, 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 important or changing experience in a person's life, you don't know at first how, how what kind of effect it may be having, and it may have a very deferred effect. I mean, something that seems to be a loss in the first year five years out may seem to be kind of fabulous or or nostalgic or amusing or or something you can tell a good story about uh, on the contrary something that seems like oh boy well, that was that was kind of good uh, that, was, that, was, that had its problems and I was bored half the time but it was, it was overall kind of cool to get out for a couple weeks get on a plane and go somewhere, uh, might seem five years from now uh, condescending, manipulative, like they've been used. You know, the person might feel any of those things. And uh, it, I believe it's left to the reader to imagine not which of those pop- possibilities to determine is determinative, but all of them as possibilities. Were Walter and and Charlie um, requited in any way uh, with regard to their to their grief? Did they feel somehow better for having done what they did? I don't know. Good question, and I don't know. Did did these young men well, interact well, just with? I'm sorry. Put it another way. Close question. I'm sorry. It was, it was it was it was be a close question whether uh, w- what effect having done this uh, had on them and on their marriage, on their hopes, and so on. They did leave. They did leave. Uh, uh, well, I don't want to give. I don't want to be. Uh, uh, yeah. No spoiler I, alerts. Well, yeah, I better stop now in terms of saying too much about the story. Well, let me let me uh, let me ask this: Did these Fifteen young men. Did they interact primarily with uh, Walter and Charlie, or did they meet other people from Sneed's Harbor and interact with other town folk? As you might expect, they don't interact much with anybody but themselves. They're ah. a little bit cocooned. They're they're uh, uh, the the deceased son's girlfriend 
who organizes the trip and comes up from the Bronx with them is closely uh, involved with them through the two weeks, as is an old friend of Walter's who Walter hires to kind of drive the bus. Uh, but beyond that, their contacts are limited and awkward, uh, as you might expect. What is it that you're hoping... Um, I, I've been asking about, you know, what what the young men learn from their trip and, and what uh, Walter and Charlie learn from the trip. But what are you hoping that readers will come away with from sharing this experience with the characters? You know, somewhere, I, I think I was asked that question once before. Oh, darn and, it. <laughs> and, 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 and I, no, and I think, I think my, my flippant immediately answer was that the, the, the feeling that they didn't waste their money, uh, <laughs> that, that they got a good read out of it. Uh, and uh, that would be my, still my first response because I don't know what they're supposed to feel. I, I bring, I bring the, the record to them. That is to say, I bring the uh, story as I understand it, uh, not hoping to manipulate their feelings, uh, but uh, to challenge them. And I would be pleased, actually, with a whole range of reactions to this book. I would be pleased. The wider range of reactions, the better, including those who say, oh, this is terrible. These people never should have done that. Why do you even bother writing about them? I could understand that as well. Uh, uh, although I hope those people are in the minority. Well, this book sets up a, a somewhat uh, specific interaction between these kids from the Bronx and a couple that live in Sneeds Harbor, Maine. And I'm, I'm wondering how you imagine something like that or if there's a way as you were writing the, the story, if there's a way to research that and, and to be able to better imagine how these people would react to each other. Um, I would say in, in truth, uh, for, for my fiction, for the books I've written, with uh, one notable exception, I suppose, because it was set in historical times, uh, I don't do an extensive amount of research for my books. I w what I try to do is record what my imagination and memory have already seen. What I this this is of course an experiment. Fiction is always an experiment, I think. But my idea of how to be truthful is not to sit there in, in, a, in an authorial vein and uh, look up a bunch of stuff uh, uh, online or otherwise and try and figure out how all those things should go together, but rather to a little bit step back from my memory and imagination, try and have uh, 
minimal observant self in back of my memory and imagination trying to record what simply my imagination and memory have already in a kind of uh, unconscious or scarcely observed process observed uh, and wh- how that in more practical terms how that winds up is that there will for each of my books have been certain things that I've observed in life or have happened to myself or somebody else I knew in life that made some kind of an impression on me for in, in ways I can't even understand the way uh, say uh, you know uh, ancient peoples looked up at the stars and, and, and suddenly saw a constellation you know this star uh, look this if you if you drew a line from this star to that star to that star to that star to that star suddenly you'd have a hunter with his belt or something like that in this case uh, there were various things that I either observed or happened in life including working in the criminal justice system in Manhattan uh, long ago uh, including uh, living a good chunk of each year in a village in Maine uh, including hearing stories, uh, not recently, and, and none, those stories that came to fruition of people who thought to uh, start a drug rehabilitation clinic uh, somewhere on the outskirts of one of these villages. Uh, and finally, and not least, uh, 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 reading as many people across the whole United States read a few years ago, of the governor of Maine uh, making a quite, uh, the person who was then governor of Maine, making kind of, uh, I, I guess you'd have to say ludicrous uh, and, and, and certainly harmful and, and, and uh, slightly racist uh, comments about uh, drug dealers uh, coming up to Maine from out of state and causing a lot of trouble in the state. Is this book set in a a specific time, or is it supposed yes, to be? Yes, it is. It, it, it's 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 basically set uh, in the time when uh, I wrote it, which would be about 2017, 2018. The reason that I ask is is because a lot of young people. Um, are so preoccupied with their mobile devices that I, I wonder if they're even able to experience the things that, you know, situations that they find themselves in. If you know what I mean, you mentioned social media yeah. casually, but I thought if this was most of the, you know, if this was, if these young men were indicative of a lot of the young people I see, they'd have spent two weeks in uh, Sneeds Harbor, Maine, looking at their cell phones. I, you know, that, that's a good observation, and I bet you, uh, the, although the book doesn't, the book pays some attention to that, in that, uh, again, without uh, the giving away too much plot, there comes a moment at which uh, a bunch of them wonder if they could get new phones out of the whole experience. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a lot of their spare time uh, back in back where they're sleeping are, are spent on their phones. In in some ways, your book is is a a critique of 
racism in the U.S. Um, and your characters struggle with this. When you were writing this book and you're telling this story, do you imagine telling it to someone? Is there an audience you have in mind? What's uh, what's next for you, Jeffrey? Uh, uh, languishing, I would say. <laughs> I was going to say, is there another book in the works, or I, I do have another book which I uh, uh, actually was working on right up to COVID hitting us, uh, and which was in pretty good shape during COVID uh, COVID time. I've been remarkably unproductive, uh, uh, remarkably distracted by the world, and, uh, you know, it it actually disappoints me a little bit, but I do have this other book uh, that I'm uh, hopeful about and hope to be able to show to the world fairly soon. can't say much about it except that it does exist. You mentioned uh, writing for television somewhat parenthetically and I didn't mention you won a lot of awards for your work on Hill Street Blues how much different is writing the great American novel as opposed to writing for television well of course of course you have to start by saying if I knew how to write the great American novel I'd be in good shape (laughs) if I could write that I wouldn't write what I'm writing for a minute, uh, there there are, there are pretty substantial differences. Uh, what uh, um, what the, I suppose the biggest constant is one one I would like to be uh, 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 write something that other people can get something out of. You know, I think that's a kind of constant. I you know I don't write. I didn't write for TV or didn't write uh, any of these books to uh, be dismissed easily. Uh, after that, the, the differences are huge, uh, not least uh, writing for TV when I wrote for it. was uh, very substantially for us a collaborative process and a wonderful collaborative process. I loved uh, uh, sitting in a room with some other people and uh, uh, knocking out stories and then going off each individually and writing a bunch. Uh, um, and I loved uh, the, the feeling that uh, I didn't have to know quite as much as you'd have to know to write a book because you, in writing a script, I mean, you put down the, the dialogue and the actions and the settings, but then you've got wonderful actors to bring them to life. Right? and a director to help bring them to life and set designers and 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 cameramen and and uh location
location managers, uh, costumers, and everybody are doing. Everybody else is doing about eighty percent of what in a book winds up just being your job. Uh, that's, that's in practical terms, that's probably the, the biggest single difference. The, 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 combined with what I already alluded to, which is uh, being all by yourself in a, in a room somewhere when you're writing a book, as opposed to the uh, more collaborative world of uh, writing for uh, a major commercial enterprise like a TV show. Well, Jeffrey, I feel like we're just getting started and we're almost out of time, but I always give uh, guests a chance to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Jeffrey, do you have a website? Uh, No, I do not. I used to, and it was a one-page website which cited all the reasons why I wouldn't have any more of a website than that. (laughs) You would think, and I I did it like in courier type, you know, just like it's a screenplay or something, and you would think it would have been roundly ignored, but it was probably one of the only websites that actually got some publicity just because it was so (laughs) simple and and so much a denial. No, I do not, and I do not do social media, fundamentally. Uh, However, I do. Uh, I, I, uh, I bend to some of the realities of the world, of course, and uh, have an Amazon uh, web page where uh, I believe I can be reached and comments left. I'd be happy if anybody likes the book to review it on Amazon. Uh, I would be happy if you walked into your uh, a local independent bookstore and inquired about the book. Uh, they may not have it, but they can certainly get it. Classic ways of uh, supporting a, an author. I, I welcome all of them, but they all boil down to one. Please get the book and read it. <laughs> well put, Jeffrey. And uh, thanks so much for spending this time with me and keep up the good work. Thanks much. Bye-bye. Take, take care. Author Jeffrey Lewis, the name of the book is Land of Cocaine. And we'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner program. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. 
Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. 
get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone... I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. It's 8 o'clock in Los Angeles. It's 9 o'clock in Denver. It's 10 o'clock in Chicago. In Baltimore, it's 6.42. (laughs) Time for the 11 o'clock report. First of all, the headlines. Welcome Wagon runs over Newcomer. Good Humor Man slays Ten. Pen Pal stabs Pal with Pen. Pediatrician dies of childhood disease. And Jacques Cousteau drowns in bathtub accident. We'll be back with full details in just a moment after this word from Cooley's Cigarettes. You know something, Bill? These cigarettes of mine, they taste like crap. (laughs) Say, Dan. (laughs) Crappy taste. Why don't you try the cool, refreshing taste of Coolies? Coolies, eh? You smoke them? Nope, found them in the subway toilet. (laughs) And now back to the news. History's 135th heart transplant operation was performed yesterday in New York City. One unusual note, the heart transplant took place in Central Park at midnight, and the donor's family was not consulted. Dr. Timothy Leary's brother, really Leary, today announced the formation of a new religion which teaches that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo. (laughs) Police today arrested Margaret Fulcrum, a 45-year-old unregistered nurse, and charged her with accepting collect obscene telephone calls. Famed television announcer Charlie the Tuna was found dead today of mercury poisoning. (laughs) Sorry, Charlie. Good news from the Far East. No one was killed in Vietnam today. However, three people died of old age at the Paris Peace Talks. (laughs) And former French President Charles de Gaulle rose from the dead today just to show everyone he could really do it. Well, that's it from the news desk for the latest in sports. Here's Biff Barf. 
Good evening, sport fans. Biff Barf here in the Biff Barf Sportlight Spotlight, picking them up and barfing them right back at you. I call them the way I see them, and if I don't see them, I make them up. No games today. However, we do have a few late football scores still coming in from the far west. Guam Prep, 45. Marshall Islands, 14. Mindanao A&M, 27. Molokai, 10. Caltech, 14.5. MIT, 3 to the 4th power. William and Mary, 6. Nick and Tony, 105. And here's a partial score. Stanford, 29. Well, that's it, kids. That's it from the scoreboard in the world of golf today in the Fats Domino Desert Classic. First round leader Willie Waterhazard had a birdie, two eagles, and a duck this afternoon. <laughs> Meanwhile, the favorite Gary Fairway was way behind, scoring a record 609 strokes on the front nine when he accidentally stepped aboard a bus to Minneapolis while playing a difficult lie from the highway. Well, that's it, sport fans. Join me tomorrow afternoon on the ever-widening world of sports when I'll be presenting the national two-man pall-bearing championships. And next week, I'll be a guest hunter on American Sportsman. Six of us are going to kill a rabbit. <laughs> now, with the latest in weather, here's Al Sleet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey, you call your parson. Al Sleety, hippie dippy weatherman, brought to you by Parsons Pest Control. Do you have termites, water bugs, and roaches? Parsons will get rid of the termites and water bugs and help you smoke the roaches. Present temperature is 68 degrees at the airport which is stupid, because I don't know anyone who lives at the airport. <laughs> Downtown, it's much hotter. Downtown's on fire, man. Now, if you'll take a look at our national weather map, you'll see that we don't have one. So try to picture last night's map in your mind. Remember all those lines and numbers. Weather was dominated by a large Canadian low, which is not to be confused with a Mexican high. <laughs> Tonight's forecast, dark. <laughs> Continued mostly dark tonight. Turning to widely scattered light in the morning. That's it from Al Sleet. Don't forget, if you don't like the weather, move. Thanks, Al. Always a great report from Al Sleet. I think we all know by now, Al's been into the mushrooms. <laughs> well, that just about wraps it up on the 7 o'clock report. Join us again tomorrow night at 9 for the 11 o'clock news. In the meantime, stay tuned for a brand new comedy series, Double Trouble, the story of Siamese twins joined at the lips. <laughs> And the merry mix-ups that occur when one gets married and the other has root canal work the same day. <laughs> Good night, all. This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Shine
new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Well, that wraps it up for today's uh, edition of the Tom Sumner program. Hope you enjoyed it, and uh, don't forget, there's still time uh, until 8 o'clock this evening to get out and vote. Tomorrow coming up on the show, it's uh, Wednesday, which means armchair politics, but a special uh, edition of armchair politics in uh, many ways, as Paul Rosicki would say. Um, one is we're going to be live at the new McCree Theater on Clio Road, live and in person. And you're welcome to join us if you'd like and watch us uh, do our weekly roundtable known as Armchair Politics. If it's Wednesday, we're doing Armchair Politics. And because today was Election Day, we'll be doing commentary and analysis on uh, today's election, a little follow-up. And uh, our roundtable regulars will include, uh, well, Paul Rosicki, but uh, Henry Hatter will be off Um and in his place, George Moss, who hasn't been with us for a while. And uh, we'll be joined by uh, Politico Emeritus Woodrow Stanley. Anyway, I want to say thanks to the guests that were on the show today. Uh, former writer for uh, the TV series Hill Street Blues. Who, he won a lot of awards for that. But Jeffrey Lewis joined us uh, during the third half of our three-hour tour to talk about his novel, Land of Cocaine. And... Um, Interesting conversation with Robert Kimball about his memoir, Crisis and Compromise, the Rescue of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That took place uh, during the middle or second hour of our three-hour tour. And we kicked things off this morning with um, corporate sustainability expert Kate Gartner talking about, uh, well, the... Um, Oh, what do you call it? The uh, carbon taxes and uh, other things. Also, her book, Planting a Seed, Three Simple Steps to Sustainable Living. Anyway, that's smoking George tickling the ivories, letting me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room and uh, off to the new McCree Theater tomorrow for Armchair Politics. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program, 
and thanks for listening. 